Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Jan- or sorry, January. It's February the 27th, 2020. Uh, and this is episode 2608 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, we've got a good one for you today. And we've got a twofer. Um, first, I'm getting more and more questions about coronavirus, and I have tried to keep this into the world of calm, cool, and collected. There are some things that I think you should be doing regarding coronavirus, but there are also things I think you should have done anyway, and some things I'd like you to know and how you might not get suckered into spending you know, your life's savings on an N95 Max or some mask or something like that. Uh, we'll talk about all of that today, and it's going to be a relatively short segment because there isn't actually that much to say about this. Uh, but I do want to clear something up because I have said stay calm about this. I keep getting asked a question that I find completely bizarre. Do you still think it's a nothing burger? Um, I have used the term nothing burger. I have never once, I have never once, I have never once used that term about coronavirus. Not one time have I said it's nothing, you don't have to worry about it at all, it'll have no effect whatsoever on anybody, it is zero threat to anyone. What I have said is, it's probably not that much bigger a threat than really bad flu years for us in the United States. And I'll explain why that's the case uh, when we get to, to, to that part of the show today. But that doesn't mean that there's no risk whatsoever. And the risk is people being freaked out. That's the risk. People freaking out about this like it's freaking airborne Ebola or something like that or freaking the return of smallpox or something. Freaking polio and smallpox hybrid into a weaponized freaking virus. That's how people are acting about this. And it is being used to sucker you out of your money, especially in this industry. It is being used to sucker you out of your money and scare you, and it needs to stop. We can rationally say this thing is something to at least pay attention to and not act like a bunch of, and I'm going to use a word some of you don't like. We used it a lot with Curtis uh, yesterday, but here it comes. If you don't want to hear it, skip ahead 30 seconds, okay? And stop acting like a bunch of fucking fucktards, okay? Because that's how people are acting about this. And it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous on its face. It is stupid. It is moronic. And if you look, all of the people who are telling you, oh my God, it's going to happen, it's going to be awful, all this stuff's going to happen. They're all selling you some kind of shit to go along with it, aren't they? Right? See, this is one of the reasons I kind of stayed out of the product world when I got into prepping. Because I didn't want to ever be tempted to not let a good crisis go to waste when it came to monetizing something. And some of these people that are in this industry that you think are really, really big time, I'm going to tell you flat out, they're Barely surviving on an ongoing basis. And if it wasn't for a big peak in revenue that they get during one of these crises, they would be out of business. If we go too long without a crisis, they don't have a business. I'm telling you. There's, there's people that are, have at least at one time or another been connected to this show that fall into this world. And I'm just saying, if they're hyping it, 
go elsewhere for your information. And it'll all make sense when I cover that part of the show, which will be short, maybe 20 minutes-ish. Then I'm going to switch to, instead of what I need to talk about, what I want to talk about right now, which is this concept we've been bouncing around of micro-CSA. And the two subjects are not related, but in a way they are. Because the, uh, coronavirus' biggest threat is economic. That's the biggest threat there is from coronavirus, economic. And so what do you do in a time when you might have economic problems? You build a business. What do you do at a time when things might get good? You build a business. You build a business, you build a business, you build a business. And if you're not going to build a business, then you build self-sufficiency. And so the th stuff I'm going to talk about with CSA today, which, again, I don't even think that's the right word for it, but I don't have another word for it yet. Um, well, I, I honestly think that it will be very beneficial to anybody that's concerned with providing food for themselves. Because some of the crops we're going to talk about very, very high in nutrition. Not high, high in calories, but in nutrition. Remember, one of my philosophies with self-sufficiency and homesteading, permaculture, etc., is in general, unless you have the space, the time, the resources, you're going to have to make a decision as to what you do. Grow your nutrition by your calories. And if you're going to grow your calories, look at rabbits and quail. Those are your two easiest answers. Easy button on that. And if you are worried about having to be able to, let's say, self-quarantine for like a month, which you some you might have to, I'm not saying it's likely. I'm saying it might happen, and specifically in some parts of the country, it might happen. That like even if they don't make you, you'll decide that it's just easier if you can produce your own food. You're better prepared for a pandemic. If you can produce your own food, you're better prepared for an economic recession. If you can produce your own food and sell it to other people, you're more prepared for an economic recession or good times. Remember, this show is always about building a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. And that's the way we approach everything. And the fact that there is some disease somewhere in the world doesn't change what we do. And the reason I have not been... Saying more about this is, one, I don't want to contribute to the hype. And two, I expect that a member of this audience could be home for a couple, three weeks and not starve to death. If you are a member of this audience, I expect that of you. And if you're not there, I expect that you're working to be there as soon as possible. And if this gives you a little kick in the ass to get there, great. But every one of us should be able to just take the car keys throw them in a drawer, and not leave the house for 30 days if we had to. And that's that's kind of the duration I've always talked about, and it'll make sense to why that duration still makes a lot of sense during something like this. When I get to it. But before I get to it, I want to remind you, you like this show and the work that I do, you can help support us by becoming a member of the MSB. That's the Members Support Brigade. Um, and all you got to do to do that is go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members, and sign up. It's 50 bucks a year. And I'm big on value for value and giving a customer more value than they give you in money. That's how, that's winning business right there. That's why this, this, this business has been stable and growing for over 12 years. Crisis come, crisis go, we keep growing. Because we didn't build it on hype and crisis in 2008 when we started. We've always been this calm, cool, collected thing. So you use the discounts, and you know what? You do really well by getting your money back plus some. So if you buy a membership for 50 bucks and it saves you $100 a year, why wouldn't you have it? Because it makes economic sense. That's what I like to do. I like to make sense. And specifically, I like to make economic sense. 
today's uh, discount vendor that I want to just remind you about, because there's so many companies in the MSP, people forget how much value there is there. It's a company I picked up last year called Fish Newer Fertilizer. It, is, it was created, or the, the product itself is created, by composting fish manure and oat straw with a small amount of clay. The clay particles attract and hold carbon chains that otherwise would be converted to CO2. This increases the amount of organic material that remains in the product. The clay particles also provide an ideal environment for maintaining active micro life. Fish newer is a natural source of plant nutrients in the form immediately available to be used by plants. It has no smell, and MSB members get 10% off all the fish manure, fish newer products. I trialed this in my garden before I brought this vendor on. I took two beds side by side, used my full fertility program in both of them, and added the recommended amount of fish newer in the second bed. It was obviously better. It was like my fertility is so great anyway. It wasn't like, oh my God, look at the difference. But it, you could tell which one had received the extra treatment and which one hadn't. The plants were more vibrant. They were more resilient, and they required less irrigation because they were stronger and tougher. And it was mainly, there's not like a, a huge NPK ratio in this stuff. It is microbiological life that it, that it has and that it encourages, and that is soil life. So uh, we're going to talk about uh, hydro quite a bit when we get to the CSA thing today, but uh, I do a lot of growth in soil, including in the ground and in container gardens, and I am, I am sold on this product. And again, 10% off on it. Uh, I won't pay for your whole MSB, but it adds up, and there's just another example. So let's get into this um, about the coronavirus. So I have taught something from the very beginning of TSP called disaster commonality. And it is designed so that you can just not you know, go from calm to freaked out. That's, that's what it's for. Because if you prep for A... Disaster. you've prepped for just about any disaster. And if you're prepped, you're prepped. And there's only so much you can do here. So I want to start out with our quote of the day on this. And this is by Martha Beck. Martha Beck is an author, a sociologist, a motivational speaker, life coach, that type of thing. Uh, I'm not a huge fan or anything, but I found this quote by her today, and I really liked it. And I thought it really fit what we're talking about today. She said, I practice staying calm all the time, beginning with situations that aren't tense. Now, that's interesting, because most people would say, well, I'm calm when things aren't tense. Are you? And are you mindfully calm? There's a big difference between you're calm just because you're calm, and you're calm because you're mindful of the fact that you're remaining calm. Because right now, there's a lot of you that are running around pretty tense, pretty not calm about this coronavirus, and guess what? Right now, outside your door, there is zero risk to you. It really is. And if there is any, well, there's a few cases here and there that have popped up, okay. You are way more likely today to drive to work and get hit by a semi-truck or a, a, a gravel truck or something and killed than you are to get coronavirus. And if you do get hit by a truck, you're about 100 times more likely to die in that wreck than you are to die if you even get coronavirus. With an exception that I'll talk about in a second. But so right now would be a good time to practice being freaking calm about this thing. And if you, if you can't be calm now, how are you going to be calm if it does grow to be a more significant threat? Maybe not even a threat to your life, but a threat to, you know, 
your convenience. And that's the biggest thing here. What the CDC said that started everybody freaking out, the market's selling off, is the convenience of the American people would be disrupted sooner or later. That that's it's going to disrupt your convenience. And we're such a bunch of freaking wusses in this country. Oh, my God, my convenience. Holy shit, I can't have that. So we have to learn to remain calm. And when she said things aren't tense, she didn't mean that there's nothing to worry about. She just meant that there's nothing immediately imminent about to crush you like a bug. Because you can always find something to worry about, can't you? If you could never find anything to worry about, you wouldn't listen to a show called The Survival Podcast. You wouldn't be a prepper in some way. Okay, so we've set the stage. Now let's talk about this. The, the reason, again, that I have not gone crazy with this is very simply that if you follow what I teach you're already about as prepped as you can be. And so here's the facts. With disaster commonality, what you have to deal with is providing your own systems of support. If you have a pandemic where you increase your risk by going out and about in the world, the easiest thing you can do to get to a point where it's almost completely unlikely that you'll get sick is to stay home. If you can stay home for 30 days, you can probably get through anything that we're going to deal with this year. And this thing is not a long-term problem because they said when they did the CDC brief, briefing with the Orange Man that they would, they would have a, a vaccine probably within a year. They're doing that because this stuff, all of these illnesses that are human-to-human -human transmission, you'll notice that they always have a season, it's the winter. That's when they always have a season where they spread the most during the winter. Unlike a disease that requires a vector, Let's say malaria with a mosquito. Okay, so a mosquito needs water and warmth. So if you get a malaria epidemic somewhere in the world, you get it in a warm, wet season. Human-to-human -human transmission, respiratory illnesses like this virus, they stay alive longer on surfaces and outside of a human body when it's cool and dry versus warm and wet. So these things always run in cycles. That's why you don't see a big breakout of flu in August, for instance. So this will ebb and flow. Our CDC is pretty good at following. Like They're one of the organizations that tend to actually make sense most of the time. And under-promise, over-deliver. So they say year, year and a half. That probably means about a year. Most government organizations say something's going to be a year, year and a half. It's like 10. CDC is usually pretty, and the Chinese don't are not going to be burdened with all of the concerns we have about safety and, and shit. They'll move even faster on a, a vaccine. And as I said earlier this week, we already have a vaccine for this virus, just not this strain. We've been giving it to dogs for a long time. If they really needed to fast-track a virus faster than they're going to do it, they could. There would be certain risks inherent to it, and it would be pretty risky to take it. And I probably wouldn't, but they could. And people have asked me a lot on vaccines because I have a reputation for being an anti-vaxxer. I'm not. I just don't think we need to be shocking the immune system of a child under one year of age with a massive number of vaccines at one time that they have almost no risk of getting the disease in the first place. My stance on a vaccine is I will use a vaccine Whenever I believe the risk of the illness is greater than the risk from the side effects of the vaccine. So where are we at with coronavirus? I don't know yet. Right now, I wouldn't take it if they had it. 
Because I believe the risk to me is very, very low. If the risk I thought became very, very high, and they had a vaccine that seemed to work, then I would take it. See how simple that is? By the time this thing goes through this first cycle, pops up next year, they're going to have a vaccine for it. And in China, they're going to force everybody to take it, because that's what they do in China. And we're going to, this thing is not going to be a long-term threat to humans' existence. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, there is a group of people that you do need to be a little more concerned about this than everybody else. Anybody with significant underlying health conditions, specifically respiratory, this is bad if you get it. If that is you, you may need to have a more thoughtful plan about how you self-sequester if this thing becomes more you know, community-oriented, spread, multi-generational in the United States. Because if you have emphysema, if you are a lifelong smoker, if you have uh, industrial-related respiratory problems, if you are subject to uh, bouts of pneumonia during normal illnesses, that's the population that's getting kicked off by this thing. And the older you are, the more at risk you are to those things. The other reason that this is a, a fairly high lethality rate, even though it's actually low, but, it, but, it, but it's high compared to, let's say, your garden variety flu, Humans have never been exposed to it, so the ones that are more predisposed, have no immunity built up, are more likely to get ticked off. But you got to remember, you got to remember, the number of deaths in China are inflated against the reported number of cases because they there are probably two to three times more cases in China than their official number. And it's not just because they're lying about it, it's because a lot of people get this, they get sick, they stay home, they get better. They don't require Elevated treatment. The, the official number for requiring elevated treatment, meaning you need to go to the hospital, is 1 in 20 in China in the epicenter. 1 in 20. 1 in 20 die. 1 in 20 needs significant assistance at a hospital. Now, you end up with 50 million cases, you've got a big problem. If you don't have 50 million cases in, in, in China, then you're not going to have 50 million cases in the United States. That, and if you look at the population density of the place, the places this is really hit in China, that makes sense. And you don't just look at how many people live there. You look at the way people live, multi-generational households, etc., like I've said before. And then look at their respiratory health. It's shit. So they're setting the stage. Now, the reason I haven't pushed too much with this disaster commonality is because common sense preps are all you can really do. You ain't going to treat it with fish antibiotics. You ain't gonna shove shark piss up your nose, right? There's, there's, you're, you're not going to uh, go build a bunker and hide in Montana over this. So, if you have the basic preps in place, maybe a few tweaks is all you need, because it, not because there's no threat, because it's what you can do anyway. Two to three weeks of stored food, thirty days is better. You should be if you can stay home. So whatever you need to stay home for thirty days, if you got that. By the time it would get to a point where it starts to really be an issue in the United States, it's going to be ebbing out for the season anyway. And that's just on environmental conditions alone. Plus, we are a lot better at dealing with this shit than the Chinese are. The Chinese are very good at the authoritarian quarantine thing. Better than we are. But we are better at actually managing a situation like this. A lot better. Not a little better, a lot better. Um, if you take maintenance medications, 
30 days on hand maintenance drugs. By the way, this is what the CDC and everything everybody's saying too. Because they're actually somewhat competent on this. Now, see, again though, it, who listens to this show that hasn't already heard me say a hundred million times to do those two things? Next, reserve water, sure, but it's highly unlikely your water is going to be shut off. It's highly unlikely. And it, we, there is no reason to believe that our water supply is going to be infected with coronavirus. That's, that's just not a thing, especially the way water is treated in the United States, the, the sheer amount of chlorine. But I recommend water filtration anyway. But having some reserve water is probably not a bad idea. I recommend that you keep some good multivitamins on hand, even if you don't normally take a multivitamin. And the reason I recommend that is if you do end up sequestering yourself, self-quarantining, and you're eating stored foods, and you're not growing a lot of your own food, or especially this time of year or whatever, there's a good chance that you might run into some nutritional deficiencies. And it would just be easier to pop a couple, three multivitamins a day during this period of time, and you should be boosting your immune system anyway, and boost your immune system with, with things like vitamin D, vitamin C, which you should be doing anyway. And next, have enough hygiene products. They always say feminine hygiene products. Okay, sure. But just in general hygiene. It's one of the most important things to keep yourself healthy, whether it's coronavirus you're worried about or anything. Soap, shampoo, deodorant, right, toothpaste, etc. All your hygiene products have enough in reserve that you don't have to run to the store next week to get a tube of toothpaste. I mean, what else do you think you're going to do except not keep calm? Next up, I want to talk about some misconceptions and some potential alternative solutions, though I'm not really ready to say either, either one of the two alternative solutions are definitely going to work, but they're good to know about. Number one, right now, the smartest people on planet Earth, as soon as this started, went out and bought as many N95 masks as they can, and they sold them on eBay to suckers. That was the, the, the smartest move you could have made here. And I, I kicked myself for not seeing it, but I wouldn't do it anyway because I'm not, I'm not that guy. I'm not the guy that does shit like that. Um, N95 masks will filter 95% of particles, 3.3 microns, 0.3, three-tenths of a micron or larger. Coronavirus specifically novel coronavirus 2019, is about 1.5 microns, a little bit smaller than that. Half the size of what an M95 mask will filter. An M95 mask is actually great for preventing you, if you have coronavirus, from spreading it elsewhere. Because even though the virus is smaller, when you're breathing, it's bound up with your snot and your spit and your, your moisture and your breath and whatever, and it's pretty good at keeping it in. It might help a little bit keeping it out, but it really won't work. You don't see healthcare workers with a known infected individual wearing an M95 mask, do you? You see them with the great big hood and all that you know, shit like from scary movies. You know why? Because that actually works. So don't go out cashing in 401ks to buy two, two N95 masks for 25 bucks, like I saw yesterday when I checked into them. Don't do it. They are more for preventing spread than protecting you. The next thing is, and I don't know how well this would work for coronavirus, but it works reasonably well for other viruses. Any surgical mask, which they're dirt cheap, misted 
somewhat frequently, because it wears off over time, with a highly antiviral essential oil. Now, don't go out and become a freaking MLM uh, distributor of essential oils tomorrow because I said that. Please. Um, but the reality is essential oils do some things well. And I remember one study years and years and years ago. This is like pre-internet. There was a group of hospitals over in Europe that began misting lavender essential oil in the hospital itself. It made the hospital smell nice. It smelled like lavender. And they, they had this massive reduction in secondary infections in the hospital. Just from doing that alone. Just, just from doing that. And I would say probably the two to start, and I don't, I'm not saying this works. Please understand that. I'm saying this might be effective. And, and based on my background and my knowledge of herbal medicine and essential oils, I would say if I was going to try this initially, the place I would start would be a combination of lavender and bergamot. They're both been proven to be highly antiviral. Now, does that mean it'll work? No, but it means it may provide some protection. And my guess is it might provide more protection than an N95 mask. Because you have something that actually will actively kill the virus. However, how much do you need? I don't know. Will it work? I don't know. But what I do know is it won't hurt anything. It won't hurt anything. There's also some research out. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, a researcher up in Canada, he looked into this for SARS and Ebola, and he believes very strongly that um, Q-certain, which is a nutritional supplement, though they call it a drug in the article, interesting that, um, could be highly effective at treating coronavirus. I've generally found things that are highly effective at treating something are highly good at preventing it. So Qcertain is something you can look at. I have a link in the show notes where you can you know, basically find it on Amazon. I don't have any particular brand or anything. I just link to the, the general thing because people might have a hard time spelling Qcertain. This is a, uh, a compound common in certain plants. But I wouldn't try to get it just from the plant because you would need a much more concentrate, concentrated dose. Something to keep an eye on. What it doesn't say there is anything about the dosage, what the quantity would need to be. I actually take a significant amount of this because it's good for blood pressure and heart health. So I'm already taking this because I work with, with uh, Dr. Stephen Lewis um, with Green Wisdom Health, and that's one of the things he already has me on. So I've, I take this a significant amount of it on a daily basis, and it doesn't cause me any problems. It's already approved for human use. You can buy it over the counter. Don't go swallowing a bottle of it or acting retarded over something with it. But it may be worth looking into because that's something that you can get. It's cheap, and it's available, and it's safe. Next, remember, if people do start going crazy with food and cleaning out store shelves, that's where everybody's going to go first. If you feel you need to shore things up a little bit, you can order food online. I'm not saying that won't take the secondary hit. I'm saying it won't take the first hit. So if you see the panicked mob starting to really pick down the shelves at the grocery, and you think, I need this, this, and this, remember you on Amazon Prime, Amazon Fresh, Thrive Market, etc. There's lots of options right now. They won't be the place people go to first. Good to know. For all things. And I know it's stupid to hear it over and over again, but yes, wash your hands. I am tired of the supposed experts 
telling me to wash into my hands, sneeze into my sleeve, etc. Okay, listen. Sneezing into your sleeve is not to protect you. It's to prevent you from, from spreading virus. But if you're sneezing into your sleeve and you have coronavirus, you have coronavirus all over your sleeve. So let's get a little context on that little stupid suggestion, okay? I guess it's better it's on you than in the air, but you, the way you, you know, I mean, if you think you have coronavirus, you need to not be out and about, not just sneezing into your sleeve. Um, but washing your hands. Washing your hands is one of the most effective disease prevention strategies that there is in all things. And that's especially true whenever you go out into public. You probably don't have a lot of coronavirus hanging out in your cupboard at home. You probably don't have a lot of coronavirus hanging out in your garden. But, you, but when you go out and about, as these cases do increase in number, and they will increase the number at some level, we just don't know how much yet, the potential for exposure, that's where it is. And our biggest risk is going to be, and you might have think about this too, you may end up deciding you need to pull your kids out of school for a while. Because that's our big, that's always these diseases, how we end up with them. Because we shove these kids into schools, they're all sitting right next to each other, they have terrible, kids have terrible heart, we call them snot slingers and rugrats for a reason, right guys? And then they bring it home and they infect you. So think about that as well. But above all, don't effing panic. And stop listening to anybody, anybody who is panicking you. If you're listening to somebody and they're using terminology like, I'm telling you what is going to happen. You know what? Bullshit. No, you don't. Or you'd be rich as F. And most of these people pushing this stuff hard right now, selling fear to you, I'm telling you, they stay on the edge of broke. Because this industry, if you don't build your what you're doing in it right, is feast and famine. And that means whenever an opportunity for feast comes up, they have to lather it up as much as they can, and they're all fighting each other to get as much as they can out of it. So if you're getting your information from anybody that's amping you up about this, get your information from somewhere else. And remember, practice keeping calm when the situation is not tense. That's right now. These people make me more tense than the virus. And I'm telling you, every time you get in your car, you have a better chance of ending up through a windshield and dead with a yield sign in your face than you do of dying from coronavirus this year. That's a mathematical equation. All right? Okay, so let's move on from there. Um, part two, this part I want to talk about today, ideas for vegetable and herb varieties for a micro CSA. So just kind of line it out again what this idea is. If you didn't listen to the show this week with Nick Ferguson where we talked about it, it really isn't a CSA. A CSA would be community-supported agriculture, and that means you buy a share for the year or for a season, and then you're, you're in a risk-sharing scenario with the farmer, if that's me. So I say, well, this is how much I'm going to sell a share for, and that share is two boxes of food a month every other week or whatever or every week during season or whenever I have it, you know, available or whatever. And if I have a really crappy year, then you don't win. You lose. You risk shared with me. And a lot of people starting these CSAs, and it's why people like our guest yesterday, Curtis Stone, hate them. There are people that are starting CSAs. They've never successfully farmed. And I find that to be highly reprehensible and irresponsible. So I'm using the term, but it's not what I really mean. A food buyer's club, a group of regular, consistent customers. That's what I'm talking about here. And the way I 
envision that this might be the best way for this to work would be to have, you know, as long as you're not trying to hide the revenue, you have everybody pay online through a customer portal. And everybody's in that portal. And maybe you have a, an initial membership fee. Because I think there's some value in that. That allows you things like packaging and materials that we're going to talk about here in a minute to, to buy all that, maybe even hold it as a deposit or something like that. Um, and it also keeps you from having people who are not actually serious about doing this. If you have a $50 membership fee for a product that's, you know, $50 bucks a, a share or $35 bucks a share and they don't want to pay the membership fee, they're probably not going to be a good consistent customer. You want a high-end customer for this. But it's not a CSA because if I don't have anything this week or I don't have what you want this week, you don't have to buy. You're not sharing my risk. I take the risk. You're a customer. Customers should not share the risk with the, with the companies they buy from, right? I don't think so anyway. I think that when you're giving me money, I should have a guaranteed return to you, right? So there's some keys to making this work, and it's why I believe that training the customer into the situation is really important. But the first one is you have to keep your workload to a minimum, especially in something that's going to be small scale, because it's not enough money to dedicate yourself 40 hours a week to. It isn't. So whatever you develop as a system for that food to get planted, harvested, and delivered has to be minimal work for you. And that's why I'm not going to do this this year. Because I'm not going to be able to do it with minimal work this year. I don't know enough to do it with minimal work this year. So I'll tell you my plan for an idea at the end of today's show to find out all the information with low risk to me and with getting to know some people in my neighborhood. All right, But work must be kept to a minimum. Freshness, freshness must be kept to a maximum. You're going to give people a product that they're going to use over, let's say, 10 to 14 days. Because I see an every other week model working for most customers. I, I, I see $100 a month for produce being something most people, again, that are because I know there's people that live on $100 a month for food. Okay, That is not your demographic in this model. Your demographic in this model is soccer moms named Karen. I know some people get offended by that or whatever, but it's the truth. That's who you're, and that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with that person at all. Right? I know we overuse the Karen thing with, with, with mocking people or whatever, but it's, it's soccer moms. It's affluent families who want the best. It's people that think 200 bucks a month, I spend that already. That's, that's the person that doesn't affect their life. And if like, I still have to buy some things from the store because they can't provide everything, but I get all of this and it's unique and different and it's fresh and all. Like, that is what you're looking for. You're not selling to poverty here. And there's two things you cannot sell to. This is a sales lesson. You cannot sell to willful ignorance. Because the way you sell a product is to a customer that's not already ready to buy is you educate them out of their ignorance about the product. So a, a person that is willfully ignorant is not worth it. It's not even that you can't eventually break that. You don't have time to. So willful ignorance you turn away from, and you can't sell to poverty. You can't sell a product to a person that they can't afford to buy, and especially when you're selling a consumable product that you need them to come back again and again if they're at the edge of their, their economics in buying from you. Not only do you not want to build a business on that because it's so susceptible to falling apart, but to me it's immoral. 
It is immoral to sell a product to a person that they really shouldn't be buying because they really can't afford. They're not in the right place in life. So we want to be careful with that dem demographic. So, but then we need within that demographic, that is a picky demographic. They'll pay for it, but it better be what they expected. So we have to keep freshness to a maximum. And that's why my idea is if we have this portal, we have all of the customers in a database that can be emailed at will. And let's say 48 hours before pickup day, an email goes out. This is what's available in boxes this week. We have 20 available this week. First 20 members that sign up, get a box. 21, doesn't get a box. And maybe you come up with a system where, like, if you got a box last week, the people that didn't get a box last week, they get first shot at a box this week. Because I would really kind of like to get people every other week Because that is more customers, smaller bites, more stable business model. But I'm still only prepping, let's say, 20 boxes a week, which could be a lot of work if we're not careful about how we do this. The reason for this, though, they paid. It's sold. I know how many, you know, only 18 people bought boxes this week. Now I only make 18 boxes. Your box is there. Your pickup window's there. You showed up or you didn't. I got the money. I'm sorry you didn't show up for your box. What do you want me to do with it? You want to give it, give it to me, give it to one of the other customers, one of them that you know or something? And see, I think you can make this like a thing people do. I go to the farm. I get my stuff. I meet all the other customers. And then they talk and exchange and stuff like that. Karen 1 can pick it up for Karen 2 this week if Karen 2 can't get there. right? But I don't have to take any money. I know exactly how much to make. I can prep the food the night before they pick it up, or the morning they pick it up. It's literally just cut or just picked and in their hands. At that point, the storage of it becomes their responsibility. And I have an automated sales and marketing system. And as much as I love automation for watering plants, I really love automation for making money. I have delivery. My customer does it for me. I have customer support. My customer does it for me. Then, the next thing is, you have to have stuff people use anyway. It can't all be oddball, weird things. The person has to feel like, well, I buy you know lettuce and, and cucumbers every week anyway, or most weeks anyway. So things are used to eating. You have to have some of that. But I also think you also have to have stuff people can't get elsewhere. And they feel like they're getting exposed to new things. So one thing I don't have on the list today, but it, I probably should have put it there, is red perilla, which is a, a an Asian mint relative that's really really popular in sushi restaurants. But there's a lot of other things you can do with it, and it's easy as it's easy as crap to grow. It's also very expensive, especially as a microgreen. It's incredibly expensive. Sushi chefs use it, and and just because it's only expensive as a microgreen doesn't mean you can't create perceived value in that it's expensive for your customers. So you have to have the everyday stuff, and you have to have unique stuff. And you have to create seasonal variations and sell that with your marketing. In other words, we're only going to have this thing for a few weeks. An example of what I could do with that is I have these locust trees all over my property. And I could provide a small container full of locust blossoms to my customers about three weeks out of the year. And I have so much of it. I can never use it all. I can easily serve 20, you know, 20 shares 
a week for two or three weeks. It's going to go. Most people have never even had one. They taste sweet, then pee, then they disappear. Amazing. Right? I'm just, I'm learning more and more about edible flowers. And I, like, I found about an, and I can't remember what they're called. It's something with a C, but there's an edible flower. They, they sell them all the time at like box stores and stuff. Um, and they taste like clove. They taste like cloves. Like soft clove, not like the hard punch you in the face clove you get from a clove. It's a soft clove flavor. Right. They grow great in hydroponics, by the way. Again, I got to remember what those are. I'll, I'll tell you next week or something. Um, but man, I saw that. I was like, wow, because that's a repeatedly harvested thing. They, they flower all year. They're a perennial. The, the long season flower. So that could be something that the reason you don't get it all the time is number one, I don't want you to get complacent, like feel like it always comes. I want you to feel like it's special, but also need to kind of build up enough of them to make harvest for enough people worth doing. There's a lot of things like that that you can do, right? So by having these variations and these things that they don't get anywhere else, but they come and they go, I want to stay a customer because I don't know what the hell's coming next, right? Next, um, have some things that are short-duration production that you can always ramp production up and have extra within, let's say, 30 days. And the reason you want to do, and, and have some buffer of those things, like even if you end up feeding it to your, your livestock or composting it or whatever, or giving some extra away on a certain week or whatever, um, so that if something fails, you can backfill. And maybe this time the box has an awful lot of lettuce and chard in it, but it's still a nice full box, right? And the customer knows what they're getting that week because 48 hours before pickup, you say this is what our boxes will contain. Okay. Um, make crops do double or triple work for you. So if you can get a crop that you can actually put something in the box from two shares in a row and it's different, and I'll save how you might do that with one example um, for my list. It'll be the first crop we talk about today. Uh, I just picked that up today from a video um, by Bright Agritech, which does the zip towers for hydro and for aquaponics. Dr. Nate Story runs that company. I actually had him on this show a few years ago. And he talked about one crop in general. I was just wondering, like, how do people grow this hydroponically? And when I heard what he said about how they deliver it to customers, I was like, holy crap, that's brilliant. Okay. Um, next, train your customers to do some of the work. The model I just gave you, the customer shows up, that's your delivery service. If you get your customers talking, and if you educate the core of your customers... And you have, you know, if you can have out of 40 total customers with an average of 20, 20 a week, 20 a share, that's enough that we, what we figured out you can probably make enough money to have a, an income for a low-level 40-hour-a-week employee. Not a high level, you know, $20,000 a year in profit. And by the way, not pay taxes on all that profit. I won't get into tax strategy, but there is a lot of tax strategy inside of a business like this. A lot. Um, but we want to train those customers. So if we can get maybe five of them to be really educated, really conscientious customers that almost see themselves as your partners in the business, even though you don't pay them, the odds are that anytime a person is at pickup that has questions or concerns, at least one of those five is there. 
Those are our love customers. Those are the ones when we have extra. Hey, would you like some extra romaine this week? We grew some extra to make sure we had enough. And like that's the customer you do that for. Hey, do you want to stay a little bit today? I want to show you some stuff we're working on. That's that customer. You want to, you want to cultivate that customer as much as you cultivate your product. And if one of those customers is there and somebody's like, what are these? Before you can open your mouth, I'm going to tell you, those people love to do what they do. Oh, those are radish microgreens. And just t- and, you know, taste them. And if they don't care for it, they'll say, well, here's how I use them. Or, well, I, I use radish. Like, do, if you don't want those this week, I'll take them. And, oh, I have extra of this. Would you like this instead? You know, I have, I, I, they did uh, broccoli and radish. My family loves the radish and the broccoli, but I'll trade you my, my broccoli for your radish. Try the, how are those? And over time, you start to figure out, like, if there's a crop that people don't generally like, stop providing that. But then that takes that all away. How do I use this? How do I cook with fennel? I can give you ten ways, but if, but if, if Karen 1 is telling Karen 2 ten ways to use fennel, because I already told Karen 1, and Karen 1 likes to talk, I'm keeping my mouth shut. So now I have a system where people pay in advance. I don't have to exchange money the day they show up. They pick up. They all live close to me so they can pick up for each other on days when one can't get there. Customer service is happening automatically. Information sharing is happening. I'm creating a social outing for people that like to be social because that demographic likes to be social. And I'm building a strong community because these people are going to have my back because they don't want me to go away. Now, will this all work? It will work. I have enough business acumen to tell you it will work. It probably won't work exactly the way I figured it out. That's why I'm not going to just do it. I am going to figure out if I want to play with it, and then if I play with it, I'm going to figure out how to play with it in a way where I can prove that it works and get all the data that I need. So even if I don't want to do it, when I say, here's a formula, the formula will work for other people because I don't talk out of my ass. So let's talk about some crops that I will definitely include if I do this. Number one is fennel. You guys heard my, if you guys read my saga of the fennel, it was pretty funny on Facebook. But I don't like buying fennel because nobody knows what it is at the grocery store and it leads to conversations I don't want to have. I'll leave it at that. So anyway, with fennel, this is an incredible crop. It kind of looks like celery with a big bulb on it. It kind of has the texture of celery, but it also has that anise flavor, which is similar to like black licorice. Um, And it's just an amazing, amazing crop. And it's relatively short term. It's not as short term as something like a lettuce or a basil, but it's relatively short term. And you can do it really well with aquaponics or hydroponics or in the ground. So it it grows well everywhere here. But what Nate Story was talking about on his video was that, you know, you can use, like most people think of the fennel, you only take the bulb. Or people know of using fennel seed. But not only can you use the bulb, you can use the, 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 the fronds. The stalks and the the leaves, which are fern-like. So what they do is one week they cut most of the stalks and leaves when the bulb's not quite ready for harvest. But they leave a little bit, and when you're doing it with aquaponics or hydroponics, fennel grows really fast. So you, it's kind of like cut and come again. So you cut, it comes again. But maybe two weeks later, you cut the whole plant. So one share you, you give out the fronds and the leaves, and the next share you give the bulb with more fronds and leaves. So now we've made it to double workforce, and it's such a fantastic crop. And it's something that when you grow it yourself, the freshness factor is huge in. So I like that. Next is ginger. Ginger is going to be something that they're going to get a couple times a year. 
if they're lucky. But we're talking about baby ginger with the stalks, which we can use the stalks like lemongrass, basically. And we can take the, the root of baby ginger. We want to harvest it before it rinds over. And it can be frozen. So you can you know you include it maybe once or twice a year. It's very, very special. It does all these wonderful things you can do with ginger, but they don't have to waste it. They can take it, they can put it in their freezer, and they can grate it, and they can put it back in the freezer, and it'll keep all season long like that. So that is something. And where are you going to get baby ginger? Unless you're getting it from a market local grower, you're not because it doesn't ship well. You need to you know, harden it off if you want to ship it. And they never ship with the stalks and the leaves. So you can also then take a whole bunch of the leaves, dry them out, and make a tea. And you might include other herbs with that tea, like a ginger mint tea would be awesome. Mint is really easy to grow, by the way, I'm just saying. And ginger mint tea might be like, nah, that's cool. But if you take those, you jar it up, you put it away, And you wait till that kind of lull in the season when you don't have special stuff. And that's when you go pull that out of storage because it stores forever easy. And then maybe, you know, like this time of year, wouldn't it be amazing all of a sudden, you know, everybody's still like waiting for the ginger to come back. And then you have this ginger mint tea in your box. That's the type of thing that I'm talking about here. Um, next up, red vein sorrel. This is a product that most people have never even truly tasted. Most people think they, they have because it's, it's a big thing in salad mixes and all now. This product looks amazing. It's why chefs are in love with it. They're in love with it as a microgreen. They're in love with it as a baby green. And they're in love with it. They buy it in plugs, which is how I would sell it. Because when you put a couple, just a couple leaves of red vein sorrel on something like a salad... Or a little bit of baby red vein sorrel, like on some sort of like a decoration on a plate. It looks gorgeous. And if you are eating it as a microgreen or a baby green at a high end restaurant, then you've probably actually tasted it. If you're buying a spring salad mix that has red vein sorrel in it, I promise you, if you pick that leaf out and eat it and you know what it's supposed to taste like, it doesn't taste anything like red vein sorrel is supposed to take. Because it loses its nutrition and its flavor very quickly. And it, it just, when you pick it up and you look at it, it just doesn't look right. It's floppy. And they usually do like a, a light saltwater wash of those vegetables and a good dry, and that keeps them fresh longer. Um, and there's some things you can do with your vegetables we won't get into today when you buy them from a store like that that actually extend their, their, their service life. So they look okay, but they do lose flavor. Red vein sorrel, I would grow as a plug. I would, I don't know how exactly yet, but it would be sold roots on and something keeping the root stamp, either in a bag, a container, something that keeps the roots moist and, and use it this week. Don't try to save it till next week. Use it this week. But I would also, as you're bringing customers in the first time, it's one of the things I would pinch a leaf off and say, try this, especially if you're doing it aquaponically or hydroponically. As good as it is in the soil, In a hydro system, the sorrel I'm growing now is the most amazing tasting sorrel I've ever grown. And I've been growing this plant a long time. I've had seeds for it as item of the day. And it tastes like lemon. It tastes like fresh lemon, and it looks awesome. Now, I've learned some things as I've been doing this hydro stuff. That's why I'm doing it. 
Um, the best way to do the sorrel that I found is a fairly decent sized pinch of seed to your, your plug. Because that way, at 30 days, I've got a plug that, yeah, it's, you know, six, eight inches high. But it also has a lot of leaves because it's actually a lot of plants instead of a plant. So that's one that, like, go with a significant quantity of. The next thing is, and I still have to work on this because it's still a long-term crop for me, but once established, it's like a year of cut and come again, and it's celery. And most people have never eaten celery that tastes like celery because the celery that you eat from a store does not have a lot of flavor, and they tend to throw away the part that has the most flavor, which is the leaves on the outermost stalks near the top. And the reason it has the most flavor is it has the most exposure to light. Because the way they grow celery is they hill sandy soil up around it, they tie it. That's why it doesn't come in like a, like a flailed out, you know, plant. It comes like a tight bunch. It doesn't grow that way. It's called blanching. So your outer stalks get light and your inner stalks get no light and it is sweet, but it's lacking in celery flavor. And so when you grow a celery as a cutting celery, And you do cut and come again with it, you get lots of flavor. And again, this is an educational process. You want to educate your customers. Don't throw those leaves away. Take those leaves and add them to your salad or add them to your soups. And cook with the celery. Because one of the like one of the things that really blows people away that, that I'll do, for instance, is I'll just cut, you know, real highly flavored celery and just do it as a roast vegetable or a quick saute. And people can't believe what it tastes like. So there is that educational process. Now, there's also the uniqueness. And we talked about the pink Chinese celery. Baker Creek sells it. It's very expensive for seed, especially for a quantity like this. I guess if you grew some long enough, let it go to seed, you could get an ass load of seed for free. Um, but if I can find the right celery that grows well, that is like a red or a pink or something other than a typical green, it's what I would use because now it's unique. And what's even better then is to grow enough of a green celery and a colored celery so that now we go and we pull, you know, we don't have to have a ton of this for, for people. Maybe it's four or five stalks or a share this week. But if we can pull two or, two or three red ones or two or three green ones and bundle that together, people love color. So that would be a definitely, and, and I've had some pretty good luck with it so far. Now, the easy button for celery is go buy celery, eat it, and plant the base. And you can grow a lot of it that way. But um, I'm still working on that one. But it's something I would like to include because it's something people are familiar with, but you would be giving it to them in a new way. And people dig that. Shard. Swiss shard is one of the easiest crops to grow. It's, it's a crop that's sold in almost every grocery store. People do buy it, but a lot of people don't know what to do with it and don't realize what an amazing vegetable it is almost every single person who is a gardener that has talked to me like about growing things that are not everyday things the one of the first questions i have from do you grow swiss chard and if they say no i'm like you need to grow swiss chard and i've had people say things like where has this been all my life i go it's right in the produce section it's not an unusual vegetable it's just not something we generally think of as a vegetable you don't you don't generally see when you go to uh, a restaurant and they say you know pick two sides to go with your steak You know, like like uh, sautéed Swiss chard. You should, but you don't. You usually see baby chard in salads or baby chard or chard microgreens in high-end restaurants. But you, I don't even usually see chard as a cooked vegetable. I'm telling you, you take chard, 
You take the leaves off the stalks, you chop the stalks up like celery, you saute them until they just begin to soften, you wilt in the leaves, drizzle a little olive oil, maybe some garlic with that. You do that as a side dish, almost anybody who's open-minded to eating vegetables anyway is going to eat it and like it. But the key with chard then is we want multicolor. And chard is one of our things that once we establish, we have a cut and come again. We do have to plan for, especially if it's in a hydro system, it grows really great in hydro, but it's going to eventually get a root mass that's so big it needs to be fully harvested. So we have to plan secession and secessing it out. The good news is it's a crop with the kind of bulk harvest and repeat harvest of celery, but the best I've done with celery, it's a little bitty plant in 30 days. The best I've done with Swiss chard, it's big enough you could harvest the whole plant as a bundle in 30 days. I've never done that till this year. And I've only done it with hydro, but I have had good luck with chard my whole life. But it comes in red, it comes in yellow, it comes in something called peppermint that's pink and white streaked. It comes in like a light yellow. And so getting different varieties and different colors and having a whole bunch of it, so it's always something you can go to, would make a lot of sense. And being able to just have like five big stalk and leaves of chard in five different colors and throw a band around it and in the box. And you just have to look at your crop and say, this week I can do that, but then next week I can't. Or this week it's edgy, getting everybody a really nice harvest, but next week I can do it for everybody, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold a week. And it holds beautifully. That's the thing. The bigger it gets, the better perceived value it has. So, Shard. Uh, next, lettuce, obviously, because everybody eats salad. Everybody that would be a customer for this product is, is, is going to be a salad eater. If you're not a salad eater, you're probably not going to be a customer of something like this. But the key with lettuce that I found is three colors and or textures. So like a dark green romaine, a light green kind of frizzy leafed thing, and a red color as a blend. And one way you can do this with aquaponics or hydroponics, or anywhere really, but but for uh, hydro and aqua, is you use a net cup plug system that's big enough to accommodate it, and you go three seeds to a cup, one of each. And if you're willing to do, spend the extra money on the seed and a little bit of time plucking out, maybe it's two of each. So as they start growing, you can pluck a few out. You can often, it, with these pl even with the plugs I recommend, the rapid rooters, If you get them young, you can usually just pull really gently and you pull the whole root out perfectly. You can go somewhere else, maybe in a soil-based system. So you just have extra in reserve. But if you do that and you plan your spacing right, you can grow it so you have three different lettuces growing in one place. So if you're doing a cut product, you just cut the base and throw it in your, your packaging and you've got a lettuce mix. I think selling root on is the way to keep freshness the highest, and anything that keeps those roots damp is going to keep it fresher longer. So if, let's say that you, to, to, for a share you want um, two of each, you pull two out, you package it, done. There it is. They have a lettuce blend. And people are very visual with their food, and that's kind of the thing. If you have two shades of green and three different textures – And one of the, and one one shade of like a red or a purple, in any kind of leaf blend that works really really good. Good, going straight in with being a cooking green and a salad green arugula. Arugula is one of the easiest things I've ever grown, and it is another thing that people haven't actually tasted arugula. 
They go to the store. They buy a great big clamshell of baby arugula for $5. I do it too. It's, it's, you know, if I don't have enough that I'm producing for myself, I'll buy that. It's okay. But it doesn't have that really nutty, sharp flavor. It just doesn't. And I saw it over and over again when I was talking to people down in Belton, State, uh, Belton uh, Texas, uh, Mother Earth News Fair. And they would come in our booth, and we had a you know, we had the other arugula I'm about to talk about, but we had just a regular arugula. You like arugula? Yeah. So you know the flavor of arugula? Yeah. Okay, here, and just hand them a leaf. Go ahead, eat that. And they would be about their third chew, and you'd see their face just go, wow. And these a lot of these people are gardeners, okay? They were blown away. Even some of them that said, well, I grow arugula like that. I can't believe you grow arugula like that in hydroponics. And I, I think this is a crop that goes in soil, it goes in hydro, it goes in aqua, it goes anywhere you want to grow it. But it is a fantastic crop, and you can grow arugula into a pretty good-sized bunch in 30 days with hydroponics. Certainly big enough to harvest and drop into a share. And the key with arugula, like some other things I'm talking about today, put a pinch of seed in there. And if it looks too crowded when it starts to grow out, you can just pull some out. Eat it. It's great. You know, you're eating a microgreen that you're plucking out a few at a time. But what that allows you to do is instead of waiting for one plant to get really big, you have five or six plants that by the time they're at 30 days and they're, you know, six, eight inches tall, you've got a pretty good size bundle. You're growing more bulk. And, and quite a few things seem to be working well when I take that approach versus trying to grow one or two really, really large. Uh, definitely arugula, and then the next one, absolutely. This is the one that I wish I would have grown more of for Belton. Wasabi arugula. The seed is expensive. I have got to find another source if I ever decide to do it commercially. Um, I don't even know if it really is an arugula, but they say it's an arugula. It looks kind of like a jagged-leafed arugula, but it's not like you know Wild Rocket or something like that that is a well-known arugula. It tastes like wasabi. It doesn't taste a little bit like wasabi. It tastes like wasabi. I mean, it is open your nose, punch you in the face, hardcore wasabi flavor. And like wasabi, it's there and then it's not. Small amounts of it in a salad, using it as like a sushi side. I mean, it's it. if you would think wasabi flavor would go good with that, you want this. It is amazing, and it's easy to grow. The seed looks like sand. I mean, when I got it, I was like, I don't even know if this will grow. It's just a little pinch and a few plugs, and I immediately regretted not growing more. It was so amazing. Next up, basil. Basil is the most profitable, common hydroponic crop for growers. It's something that every commercial hydroponics producer grows because it's so profitable, it tastes so good, and it grows so fast if you have the right conditions for it. This is another crop that I figured out that you want to, with if you're growing it for market, and you want to get a, a yield relatively quickly, so we're talking, again, 30, 35 days for yield if we're doing this hydroponically, then what you want to do is grow a clump of it. Because that, because what, what I've done, I kind of let it get away from me, and I let it go over 30 days in a crack key system, and it grew up into the lights. The lights started scorching the leaves and all. But I ended up with this like really big, long, single stalk 
by using you know one or two or three seeds. When you use a clump, when you grow, you know, at about 30 days, you get a plug that's again six, eight inches tall. It's a significant amount of basil. It is certainly enough basil that a person, you know, a person that you know wants to be able to use basil weekly gets a week of use out of. But I haven't seen anybody doing what I'm about to tell you yet. I definitely think different varieties of basil are a good idea, and including maybe growing some of like a lemon basil or the real, I can't remember what it's called, but the really compact basil or something like that from time to time to create that variation. But I think your go-to basil is your typical everyday, you know, I think they call it Genovese basil, large leaf, but red basil that has about the same leaf size, in my experience so far growing it, grows almost at the exact same speed and rate. So you would either, and I haven't tried either one of these yet, so I'm not sure which one would be better, but put a little bit of each seed into a single plug and grow like a multicolored uh, bunch. I think what would be better is to grow, if you want to give away one plug with each share, right, uh, grow two and make it two, two plugs with each share and, and grow equal numbers of red and equal numbers of green separately and then put them together in the packaging. Because that is going to look... Flipping amazing. I mean, that is going to look so freaking awesome. And most people have never even seen red basil. I've never seen it in the store. I have never seen it in the store. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I don't shop at Whole Foods. Who knows what's there? But I have never seen red basil in a store. It pretty much tastes the same. But people love color. If you go into a produce section, a really high-end grocery store, you'll notice they spend a lot of time thinking about the order in which they place the food so that you steer eye sees multiple colors and multiple shades. You'll notice they don't put you know, all the red, yellow, and, and, and green and orange peppers in a pile, even if, they, even if they happen to be charging the same. They separate them. They don't do that for your convenience. They do that for your eyes. Wow, look how much is here. Whenever you see multiple colors, you see more stuff in your head. That's how we're wired. That's how human beings are. So if we take basil... We put the red and the, the and the green together. Well, we've got something that looks really cool. And if the person's like, "Well, I want to do pesto," well, you can do pesto. But if you want it to have the green color, just use the green for pesto. Use the red in your salad, you know, or what have you. But that would be, I think, something that would be really a differentiator. Um, microgreens. Microgreens are something I think if you're going to do this, you have to do microgreens because you have a guaranteed fixed production that you know will always be there. You can always ramp it up, and you can always include a little bit more microgreens this week if something falls apart on you. So far, the ones I've been growing in my hydro farm that have worked really great for me, broccoli, borage, radish, cress, and sunflower. So let's talk about these. Broccoli is broccoli. Uh, and you got to think about your seed. Um, Kit wants a seed, and Johnny Selected Seeds are the two places I generally get the best pricing on microgreen seed because you use a lot of seed. It's a significant expense. Um, but uh, broccoli, it's, it's broccoli. And it's about 10 to 11 days, even with it being cold out in, in the garage for me right now. And I could speed that up if I left it inside longer and stacked longer. I don't want to get in how to grow microgreens today. But it's something easily I could make sure that there's always a you know, a, a portion of uh, broccoli microgreens available um, to my customers if I was doing, you know, 20 customers. Easy. Uh, borage. Borage is something, I John Dowie turned me on to it. I don't even know what to say about how amazing it is. It tastes like cucumbers. 
It tastes like cucumber and a little bit like melon. And to me, it's a good thing year-round, but my God, what an amazing thing as a micro-CSA uh, grower to be able to put you know, a significant portion of borage in the share for the week in February and have that person go home and, and, and Karen 1 goes home and invites Karen 2 over for dinner and Karen 2 is not a customer yet and she makes her a salad and she puts borage microgreens among other things in it and Karen 2 eats it and goes, where are the cucumbers? Oh, it's not cucumber. It's borage. I get it from this farm down the road. Really? Can I get in on that? I don't know. They have a limited number. You see what I'm saying? Like, that is one of those things that will blow up a customer base for you because they just, where the hell do you buy that? And it's incredibly easy to grow. It's bulletproof once you know how to do it. Um, radish, I'm in and out on radish. It's fast, it's easy, it's cheap. Not everybody likes it. I think mixed with some other things, it makes an awesome burger blend. It would be something that maybe I would do occasionally instead of frequently. Cress. This is garden cress, or wrinkled, crinkled cress would be another variety, but just garden cress. It has been really easy. I'm growing my third uh, tray of it right now. It's almost completely grown out and ready for me to start eating again. It tastes like watercress. It's got that bite, that peppery nasturtium bite that watercress has. Um, but you can grow it as a micro because you can get the seed affordably enough to grow it as a micro. And it does, it's a beautiful little microgreen. It almost looks like, um, looks like almost like little curly parsley, like the moss curl parsley, like almost like a parsley color, but it, it's got that peppery, awesome flavor. Um, and then sunflower. Black oil sunflower, everybody that tries it likes it. Uh, it's something you can always grow, you, you get a good yield out of it. Um, just awesome. Next up, purple bok choy. I've talked about that a few times this year with different varieties you can grow. I'm in love with it as a plant. It is bulletproof easy to grow. I can grow it even outdoors in the winter here. It looks awesome, and it would be a awesome plant to input into a CSA share, you know, maybe every other time for a customer or something like that where they don't get burned out on it. And It's, it's a plant that people are generally familiar with bok choy because they sell baby bok choy and stuff like that uh, at the market, but I seldom see purple bok choy. I, in fact, I've never seen it. I didn't want to say never because I'm sure somebody has. And again, I don't shop Central Market, um, World Market, place like that very often because there's not – one big reason is neither one of them is close to me. So you know, I'm, I'm looking at average everyday grocery stores, but I also know that a lot of these upper-end customers around me – They might like Central Market, World Market, etc. But they're also living lives and they have a convenience factor in their life too. And they're spending an awful lot of time at Grogers or, or Albertsons. And they're not going to see that product available there. And let them go to World Market and get the purple bok choy that came from California two weeks ago. Compared to what I can grow for them right here. And that's a fantastic stir-fry ingredient. Um, it's also the leaves are great in salads uh, as a color. Kale... I'm not in love with kale, but I would do kale in, in I would do kale like I talked about the lettuce in a multi-species clump. So you want to find kales varieties that grow about the same size, the same rate, the same speed, maybe a, a red color, a blue, and a green, and different textures. 
and either grow them. In, and, and I've saw um, a company right here in Dallas, their hydro greenhouse out in Dallas. That's exactly how they do their kale. They're doing like five varieties in one plug, pretty good size plug. But then they just, you know, where they're packing, they just pull those out and they're all mixed and all ready to go. Uh, but I would have to figure out what works best for me. Does it work best to do that? Does it work best to do like three varieties and put them together? I'm not sure. But kale I would do because everybody's in love with kale now. It's a thing, especially among the demographic we're talking about. Next is dill. I have not tried growing dill hydroponically yet. My understanding is it's really easy to do and it grows really well. And it might be a good thing for me whether I do this other thing or not if it does well because I would like to have dill other than about three months out of the year. I buy large packages of dill seed. And I broadcast it in all my containers on the on the north side of my containers. So I'm sorry, south side of my containers, the sun-facing side of my containers. I do that because I know it's going to grow really big and really tall. It's going to give, you know, it's like fern-like, so it's going to give it like really nice shade to like my peppers and tomatoes as they're young, as they're coming up, and it's going to encourage them to grow really tall. And I also know by June it's all going to start to turn yellow and die in the heat. It just doesn't like our heat here. So if I was doing it as a CSA, I wouldn't just be doing hydro here. To be clear, I have all these things on my property that I could be including in this, which makes it really unique, right? Um, but I might do it hydroponically, and then I wouldn't do it all the time. You know, I would, I would pick like a couple months out of the year that are out of season for local dill and grow it then. And make it fun for people. I think that's a big part of this. Cucumbers, peppers, tomatoes. Wanted to make sure that I included those uh, for you here. Cucumbers and peppers, I can grow the shit out of them. People like them. That's, yeah, that's, that's all there is said to it. If I, if I really wanted to, I could grow more peppers than I could you know, even sell if I had a, a CSA like this. Right now I grow, without even trying, more peppers than we can use and give away. So that's easy. Cucumber... I have occasionally I have some issues with cucumber mosaic virus, but if I was doing this commercially, um, I would for that crop definitely have a greenhouse thing. And it's cucumber beetles transmit the mosaic virus. The beetle itself does very little damage, relatively speaking, to the plant, but they transmit the cu cucumber mosaic virus. So you can grow uh, parks is a really resistant variety. That's one way to go. And the other way is, you know, using things like, like netting and stuff and, and greenhouses. You could probably mitigate that if you had to. Uh, tomato, it, I want to provide that because people love tomatoes and people would expect it. But it's a very blight prone crop. So I'm going to be playing with tomatoes with Hydra this year in various ways to see can I crack that and would I be able to do it more long term? And then there's another thing you can do there. See, this is where you've got to be creative. Like, I have this time of year where I get stupid amounts of cherry tomatoes. If I was doing it commercially, even small scale, I would probably be able to outproduce how many I would give away during the productive season. Well, I've trained my son to cut cherry tomatoes, or my, my grandson, to, tr to cut cherry tomatoes in half, and I have a 9-tray-x caliber. Last year, I put up 8 quarts of cherry tomatoes, dehydrated. Friends and neighbors, that is a lot of cherry tomatoes. A lot. If I was doing it commercially during that high season, what I could then do is put up, again, 40 customers, 40 half pints of cherry tomatoes. Dried, put them away. And then drop them on them like, 
well, I don't know, around the holidays would be a good time, wouldn't it? Because, boy, you could do some really cool side dishes with, 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 uh, with dried tomatoes. And having that fresh, or maybe, you know, like mid-January when it's cold and miserable and all the tomatoes taste like cardboard from the store. And you have this incredible pop of flavor. And it, I, I know you think like a half pint. A half pint is a significant amount of dried cherry tomato. I mean, it's not something you make one meal with. I guess you could if you were making sauce out of it, but I generally use a small handful in sautés and things like that because when they rehydrate, of course, they get bigger. So that would be another thing. Um, I'm going to give you a couple bonus ones here. I had these 16 listed, but I'm going to go ahead and give you a couple bonuses. I thought I was going through this. I mentioned cress as a microgreen. Watercress is another thing I would grow because every bit of it that comes from a store sucks. And the only way for it to be good is it has to be fresh. And the fact that you can have it in a plug, boom, and it doesn't sit for two weeks before it's on a store shelf and get misted, which it hates, by the way. Um, <laughs> uh, you could really do a great product with watercress for people. And it wouldn't be something I would do every week because it has so much you know, kind of punch to it um, that maybe you don't want to do it all the time. But you, it, it, it can be a very fast, productive crop. So you can plant it as something that comes and goes throughout the seasons. Next, um, I grow it right now. It's easy to grow. It's easy to propagate. If I wanted to grow a lot more of it, I could grow as much of it as I wanted horseradish. And that wouldn't be something that I want to provide all the time either. It might be once a year. And again, if you have the kind of like the every other week model going, you, then you want to grow enough that all your customers, at least all your customers that want it, could have some. And, you know, you, you're, you're going to put for a share maybe a, a, a single decent-sized horseradish root. It's another thing. Most people have never really tasted real horseradish. A lot of people really don't know how to use it. Now, it's a very strong-flavored crop. Uh, maybe it doesn't play as well. I don't know. But if you're only giving it out once a year, your customers that don't want it are just going to give it to your customers that do want it. And they're not going to feel like, man, I didn't, I, you know, I got ripped off this week. Because it's going to be kind of like this extra thing. And it's really easy and really cheap to grow and propagate. Sticking with kind of the punch, right? Nasturtiums. Leaf and flower. My God, if you like that pungent flavor, they're amazing. They have that same. So, like, you know, the, the microgreen crest, the water crest, the nasturtium, and the horseradish all have some similarities, as does the wasabi arugula. So you can have kind of that flavor coming and going without it always being the same thing. Because with with all the technologies available, some portion of those can be grown year-round. And because I gave you those couple bonus ones there, uh, watercress and sertium and horseradish, it brought my number to 19. I hate, I hate, I hate odd numbers like that. I'm okay with 15 or, you know, 25 or 5. I don't like 19 on a list. It just bugs me, right? It's my freaking ADD and Asperger's and whatever else. Um, so to make it 20, I kind of referred to this earlier with something like the locust blossoms. But I would just say wild edibles to make my list 20. Because I have a lot of stuff that just grows around here. And it could grow a lot more if I encouraged it. Right now, it's more than I can use, so I just don't bother. Or I allow the ducks to have access to it, where maybe I would not allow them to have complete access to it. So I could do once a year, um, you know, again, if I have to spread it out every other week for to get every customer, lamb's quarters. 
because I have lamb's quarters everywhere. It's an amazing crop. Most people have never tried it. Um, everybody that's, I've ever made it for says it's delicious. Or I could take on any given week while lamb's quarters are, do, you know, I have like three or four months where there's lots of it, but I have about two months where there's enough young lamb's quarters to where using it raw is an option. You know, adding it into a salad mix during the season that is available. Because it, it, it's one of those things that, like, if you just think of it as a weed, it's just a weed. But when you take small lamb's quarter leaves and you put them kind of on a salad where they can be seen, they really set things off. I have a huge variety of wild garlic on the property. And primarily, I just pick the blossoms. That's not like a thing that would be hard for me to get more to grow. Um, I've got wild hyacinth which I don't know how good it is yet to use the, the bulbs, but the bulbs were something that the Indians roasted. you got to be careful because they grow they tend to grow right next to camas. camas and some of the camas is known as death camas, but they're pretty obvious if you know what you're looking for. I think the problem came when it was you know settlers and, and, and during the settling of the West eating what the Indians told them to eat and just going too fast without thinking because that death camas, they call it death camas for a reason, but I don't know if that would work. But there are other things that just grow here. And I think that if you can encourage wild edibles on your property, you know, that's another thing that you can then, it doesn't have to be, see, it's the thing where you go like, it can't really be a commercial crop because it comes and it goes. But it can be part of a commercial enterprise, I guess, is one way to look at it. And there's a lot of other stuff on micro. You know, amaranth uh, is, a, is a vegetable would be another one. But I think that's enough for today. My final thoughts on this are I don't know if I'm going to do this. And the reason I'm not going, I don't know if I'm going to do this is because I have so many other things in my life. I really do. Like, I don't, and I make enough money that I don't need money from something like this. But I also see part of my job is to be an educator. And I think when you start educating somebody to something that you haven't done, and you're not honest with the fact that you haven't done it, and you're not honest about the fact that you don't know, you're doing what's called talking out of your ass. And I think what ends up happening then is a lot of people get hurt, especially if you've been doing what you're doing a long time, where you have perceived authority, to where I can come out and say that something's going to work, and most of you would believe me because everything I've ever said would work, worked. Because I never said that something would work unless I did it, or at least I saw somebody else do it and made it work. I really don't know that this model works. So this is my thought on how I might sort of do it to prove it and get a, a good community built around here and maybe find someone that wants to do it. I'm thinking about maybe taking on three or four free customers this year. Once I get things kind of chugging along and say, you know, you might not get a full box every week because it's free, so don't bitch. But just come by every Saturday or Sunday at this particular time, pick up the box, take it home, and use it. And then bring your box back. Because that's how this model would work anyway. You have to use as much reusable packaging as possible. You know, uh, zip-top containers, whatever, not bags, but, you know, Ziploc makes, like, Tupperware competitors now and what have you. Um, so that everything is, you know, try to avoid single-use plastic. It cuts an expense, and it's better for the environment, and it sells well. And then you have like some sort of a larger Rubbermaid tub that everything goes into. And it, you know, if, since everybody's getting the same, when somebody shows up, it doesn't matter what tub they get. That's what's, there's none of this selecting, picking shit out. Huh, hey Tom here, boom. Where's Karen? <laughs> anyway, um, so you, you know, and then they bring all of it back, it gets washed, and it uses next week to package next week's materials. Right, so you need twice as much of that. So for three customers, you need six sets. 
that helps me figure out like what works best, what doesn't, what customers like. And I want people that would be honest with me like, hey, like, um, if you were paying 50 bucks for that last week, how would you have felt about it? If you paid 35 for it, how would you have felt about it? What did you like? What didn't you like? So that I have a reasonable test case scenario. And then I don't have to work that hard because doing for that many people really is not a lot of work. And then maybe it morphs into something if I get the grandkids doing it or I can find an enterprising young person that wants to be part of something like this and provide the place for it to happen. Maybe it turns into a commercial enterprise. Maybe it doesn't. I don't need it to. And I might not even do it that much. But what I am going to do this year is I'm going to grow more food than I've ever grown before. And I'm going to test market it some way to people. And by the end of this season, I'm going to be able to say, if you want to do this, here's not 20 crops to try. Here's 20 crops to do. Here's how to do it. And I want to be able to give that to this audience. Because when Nick and I ran just like bottom line, top line numbers on this, we figured out that that, that market size of moving about 20 boxes a week can make a person about um, four to 500 bucks in profit. And if you can't do that, you shouldn't. Like, that should be kind of where you should be at. Because, again, you're selling to a higher demographic, and you're selling to somebody that kind of has a vested interest in you not going away. And if you think about what I described today, where else are you going to get that? You know, and you might have to sell for more money, but in the end, you should be able to make four to $500 a week of profit off 20 to 30 people. Okay? Even going to the low end, you're around $20,000 a year. It's equivalent to a $10 an hour job. And, you know, there's a lot of jobs out there that pay better than $10 an hour. There really are. But for a family that wants one spouse to stay home, I, I think it's a real option. It's not the only option, but it's an option. The other side of it, though, is if you're working 40 hours a week to do this for 20 to 30 customers, and I mean 20 to 30 a week, whatever the customer base has to look like to, to maintain that, you're doing it wrong. This should be no more than 10 hours of work a week. And if it's more than that, you need to change something about it to knock it down to 10 hours a week. And if it's 10 hours, I want you to think about it another way too. If it's 10 hours a week for you and you hire some kid locally for five, five hours a week, right, to, to do work for even if you pay him $10 an hour and you can make 500 bucks, you're still at 450 in profit. And now you're not doing the extra work. There's room in this model for the, the numbers to work out and for the workload to be relatively low for the return on investment, especially if you don't happen to have an online business making enough money to not care. Because a lot of you don't. And a lot of you aren't going to. It's not your thing. But this is something that is unique. There's an opportunity there. And you don't need that much land to do it. And a lot of you live like I do, maybe not as ideally as I do, urban rural fringe, but you got kind of urban rural fringe going on. Somewhere not that far from you are people with money, and you have enough space to do a little more than they do, and they don't have time to do this. Because the kind of people we're talking about, either either two-income households, there's a lot of those, but there's also the ones that, and I don't mean to be insulting here, but some of these people, I know the way this dynamic plays out, The mom in the situation, basically her job is she shops for a living. And I know that sounds horrible to put it that way. But I'm telling you, like when I worked up in Frisco and Plano and all, it was really evident. 
All you had to do is if you went to lunch and you went out during lunch and you looked at the people that were there, there was a certain segment of them, you're like, that's a woman married to a guy that makes a lot of money and she doesn't work. She's got her kids with her, whatever. She's, she's wearing more money in clothing than I have in my closet right now. I'm not putting that down. If You do whatever you want with your money, and that's how you have to feel for other people. But her job is to go out and find stuff. And I don't mean that they actually decided that, like, okay, well, your job, honey, is. No. And I don't mean she doesn't do anything. I'm not putting down housewives. I'm not at all. Right? You know, this old saying, we love our customers? You bet. I'm just saying, this is how this person lives. This is the perfect demographic for this. Even though they would have what you would think of as a plethora of time, they are not getting on their knees and, and, and digging in the dirt and growing green beans. They're not going to do it. They don't feel that it's the best use of their time. They don't, maybe it's not because they, don't, they're, they think it's beneath them. They just don't like it. Lots of people love to do this stuff. Lots of people don't. There's a lot of people, like my wife loves to grow flowers. She doesn't want anything to do with vegetables. She'll eat them. She doesn't want to do it. I don't know why. Doesn't matter. Like, that's when you're running a business, your customer is someone that wants what you produce, but either can't or doesn't want to produce it for themselves. And that's the key here is that demographic. Because that person will pay a premium on that food and then go brag about it. And my other thing, like we talked about this week with Nick, if you want to be bigger than that, what a great place to start. What a great, build your own base salary, and then expand until you don't want to expand anymore. Those are my thoughts on that. Hope you got a lot out of the show as a twofer. And remember, don't go freaking out about the freaking coronavirus. Sneeze into your sleeve, wash your hands, and go hide in a, bar, a hole in the ground or whatever. You know, just remember what we talked about today, and don't overstress this. This too, like all things, shall pass. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you, um, if you want to help support the show, one of the ways you can do that, do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. And when you go there, you will be able to find all of the things I recommend on Amazon. But it doesn't matter what you buy. If you start there, even if you were going to buy it anyway, you help support the show and the work that we do. Uh, today's product I brought around is the Anova Suvi precision cooker. Sous vide is something I've talked about a lot. Most of you are familiar with it. I brought this around not that long ago. I brought it around Christmas time because they had them on sale. Uh, they're not on sale right now, but it's still a good time to get one. Um, the Nano is the lower priced item, and you can use your phone to control that one as long as you're within Bluetooth range of it. Or you can use the manual controls on it. Then there's the, the Bluetooth and Wi-Fi version where it becomes a network device, and that means you can control it from work if you want to. And the reason you might do that is you could actually take your steaks, throw them in a, 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 you know, a pot or a sous vide uh, container or whatever you're going to use, uh, and, and you cook in bags with sous vide. So the, the food never touches the water. And you can set the temperature, and you hold it, and you make the best steaks ever. Right? I'm not going to say a lot about that today because I've – Talked about it a lot. Um, but if you want to know more, read the write-up today on the Anova Cooker, and you can learn all about that. But with the network one, you could throw ice in that container, and the steak's in there frozen. Leave them there all day, and you know you get your hour-and-a-half commute home, turn it on from work, and when you get home, all you do is sear it off, cook your side, and you're eating. That's why you would do that. 
But the big reason I brought this around today is something that happened on Facebook. One of my followers named Jenny posted a thing and said, I'm spending way too much on yogurt um, for yogurt drinks and stuff like that for the kids. And so I need a yogurt maker. Any any recommendation? I'm like, you don't want a yogurt maker. That's a unitasker. Unitaskers suck, especially in a kitchen. It's a big, bulky thing that does one thing for you. And some people say, you know, you can make yogurt with an oven or whatever. And you can, but look, if you want to do yogurt, what you want to do is you want to hold a certain temperature after you've inoculated the milk with other yogurt, basically, for a certain period of time. You know what holds the perfect temperature for a period of time? An Anova sous vide cooker. So let's say you're making it in jars. You fill your yogurt, your milk with, and yogurt, milk, like your yogurt infused milk in your jars. You put the lids on them and you set them in the water in, with the sous vide cooker and you set the sous vide cooker, I think 110 is what most people do yogurt at. And you set a timer and you, you've made yogurt. How about making cheese? Pretty much the same thing, less time, usually higher temperature. I've got links to like videos on how to do all this stuff today too, by the way, in the, in the write up. But you can make cheese with a sous vide cooker. You put one container inside the other. The water's on the outer container. Your milk's on the inner container. You dial in the temperature you want to bring that milk to. You add your rennet. Or if you want to make a quick, simple cheese, I do this all the time with vinegar. And you separate your cheese, you strain it out, and you have cheese. So you can make cheese. Egg bites. These things are all the rage. It's like Starbucks and other like coffee places and stuff right now. They're expensive. They're stupid expensive. They're like little biscuits, but they're made out of just egg and cheese, and sometimes they have meat or vegetables in them. And I think they're like five bucks or something. You can make awesome egg bites with a sous vide cooker. How about this? We're on eggs, boiling eggs, like soft boiled, medium, like whatever. Like it is actually a difficult skill to nail a, a boiled egg to the exact way you want it every time. It, you can do it and you can get good at it, but if you forget, if you brain fog for a couple seconds, bleh, it's gone, right? With a sous vide cooker, you can dial in exactly the temperature, set a timer, turn it on, eggs will be perfect every time. And once you figure out, see that's the thing about perfect, what is a perfect boiled egg? Everybody has a different, I love when that yolk is not runny, but it's like a bright orange and a little soft. Maybe you want yours really yummy. Maybe you want the yolk cooked through. I don't know what you want. But I know that once you figure out the formula for your eggs with your sous vide cooker, you do that every time and get what you want every time. How about creme brulee? I said creme brulee. Yes, I'm not going to tell you how, but you can make creme brulee. I have a video to show you how to do it, linked in the article, with a, with a sous vide machine. And what if you're like, but Jack, I'm like you, man. I went all keto. Okay. Creme brulee um, is actually pretty low carb until you put sugar in it. So you use some Lakanto sugar substitute, and it tastes just like regular creme brulee. I will tell you one thing about the Lakanto. It's not that great at the caramelizing, so when you make creme brulee, kind of the final step is you sprinkle a little sugar on the top and you torch it, and it, it makes this hard, crusty, wonderful thing going on. So what you do is you just use a little bit of regular sugar for that. It's still a very small amount if you really want to get that perfect caramelized kind of crust on there. I mean, it's a pinch, and you just add that into your carbs for the day. It's like every bit of freaking sugar is going to kill you, but it makes pretty good with just straight-up Lakanto too. And then you have almost no carbs at all. So um, in the words of Chef Alton Brown, who's one of my favorite people that cooks on TV, unitaskers suck. The sous vide cooker makes the best steak you'll ever make. And it does it with less fuss and less stress. 
and more ease of use and making everybody happy because everybody can have a steak. I do my wife's. Here's an example, right? I like my steak at about 136. That's very red. My wife likes hers about, if I was cooking the full time, about 145. Little tiny bit of pink. But since I want to finish hers, what I do is I cook, the, I take the two steaks, I put them in the sous vide cooker, I set it to 135 degrees. Okay? I let it run for an hour and 15 minutes. I take one steak out and I crank the temperature up to 150 degrees and I let it run for about 20 minutes. That makes her steak well done, but still juicy. I turn it back down to 135. I throw ice cubes in it until the temperature drops. I throw mine back in. I just leave it there. I go make my sides. I get everything ready. I tell her it's time to eat. She says she's not hungry yet. I don't care. I don't stress. Remember, no stress is important. And it can sit there for another hour. It's not going to overcook. Mine's not going to get overcooked. Hers is not going to go back to be undercooked. And when I pull them out and sear them off, so it's not fussy. It is a lifestyle design tool that does a whole bunch of shit. And at any unit task, and if you ain't got one yet, you need to have it. And I did this segment today mostly because so many of you do have them, and I want you to get the most out of them once you have them. So anyway, with that, you can always help us out doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day today. And it's called We Got This, and it's by a band called A Day to Remember. A Day to Remember is kind of a pop, pop band with a little bit of a punk sound uh, and some other things going on in there. But it is not my kind of music in general, but I still kind of dig this song. We have kind of songs that are all about into, you know making your own way this week, I guess would be the way to put it. Um, dealing with people not necessarily understanding you. Um, and, and and realizing that everybody fits in somewhere. And you don't need to worry about where you don't fit in. You worry about where you do fit in. And that's kind of what this song's all about. When they were coming up as a band, and they were mixing all these genres together, basically nobody wanted anything to do with them because they weren't like anything else. They would call that original. We're supposed to appreciate that. But they, they were a little like so many things that they were like, we don't know what you are. And... This song, We Got This, is basically, hey, you probably felt that way in your life sometime too. Like people just didn't understand you. I used to be the same way. Now things work for us. We got this. And we got this means that you're included. Even if your 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 place you're not fitting in is different than ours was, right? And that's a very powerful message. Because as I've talked about with these other similar theme songs this week, it's so easy when you're a young person to feel that you're never going to fit in because you're forced to fit in with people you're not going to fit in with. That's what school is. And I'm going to tell you, you young folks, that you have enlightened parents that let you listen to shows like this, you're going to be fine because the, re the real world is nothing like school. And that includes college, by the way, for some of you that are a little older. The real world is nothing like that. It's something you've got to get over, you've got to get through. In the end, you're going to struggle. There's going to be times you're going to fail. And you, I'm not going to say you'll never feel like this again. Even me, I'm almost 50, sometimes I feel like this. But you'll figure it out, because we got this. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast.
Trust me, I've been there.